when we look at this through the lens of trauma, when we look at it through the lens of adverse experiences and through the lens of brain health, we actually understand that the behaviors that we may see as bad or maladaptive or whatever we want to call them are actually natural for the way that our brains function. Adverse childhood experiences can have effects lasting years or even generations. Trauma-informed care has the power to help. We'll be discussing both with our guest, Angie Burleson, on this episode of Win This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression. Internet safety. Substance use. Body image. Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care. Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention. Solutions. Help. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year, the official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win this year. Welcome to Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Joining us by phone today is Angie Burleson. Angie is a community development specialist and polarity therapist committed to changing the conversation surrounding substance use and mental health by empowering individuals and connecting communities to become recovery-ready through a trauma-informed lens. Angie's own struggle with addiction, family experiences, and education gives her a multifaceted and unique perspective, which has inspired her to lobby for public health-focused addiction policy, expand peer support, advocate for parents, those in active addiction and recovery alike, and organize educational events. Angie is founder of Arizona Recovers, a recovery community organization which provides harm reduction-based peer support, community, and prevention, and is also project director of Arizona Adverse Childhood Experiences Consortium. Angie, welcome to Win This Year. Thank you. You are someone who has made and is continuing to make a very positive impact in the fields of mental and behavioral health recovery, treatment, support, education, etc. But even those who may be familiar with your work might not know the when and why behind it. Your intro, your bio has a little bit of the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you anyway, what got you started in this field and what was your motivation? Well, what got me started in this field, um, you know, I always joke that addiction has been in my life since in utero, but it pretty much has been. And um, when I started um, connecting with other families online uh, around substance use disorder, my um, daughter was struggling with self-harm at that time um, and had just started using substances. I was already had had already been in recovery myself at this point. Um, And then my brother passed away of a heroin overdose in 2013. And I noticed that all of these families had all of this stigma and this judgment, and they were ashamed of the struggles that were within their family. And I, I had never had that addiction was so normal within our family, that I thought everybody realized how normal that struggle um, was and could be. Um, and that's actually what motivated me to start doing the work that, um, that we do, not only to help um, my daughter and the teenagers that were currently struggling at the time, um, but also other family members to recognize, um, recognize the whys behind addiction and that it wasn't their fault um, and that there should be no shame in reaching out, um, getting help and getting support from one another, that everything is way more common than we tend to think of it, um, you know, ourselves. And that really was kind of the motivation to um, start. It really was quite by accident and really just to help others um, understand that they weren't alone. What you said in there, something you said reminds me of something I often remind people of and I have on on Win This Year as well, is that substance use is not a failure of morality. It is a behavioral 
health issue, emphasis on health. And, and you talked about, you know, the stigma or the difficulty talking about it or the shame involved. We would not be ashamed to take our child to the emergency room for a broken leg. This is no different. It's a health issue. And I, I, I constantly harp on that note because I really want to emphasize, you know, in case there's a parent or somebody listening who is having a family member going through a behavioral health challenge, there is no shame in asking for help. It is a health issue. So you mentioned some of the things that got you started in this field, your, your why. Is your motivation or your why the same now as it was when you started, or have you found new things that make you passionate about the work? I think my why is pretty much the same as when it started. However, it is just expanded as, as we've gone along. And, and just like you said, <clears throat> with substance use disorder being a behavioral health issue, you know, being in this industry makes you see just how little we take brain health um, into consideration. Um, and considering that our bodies cannot actually survive without a brain, you would think that. Um, we would want our, you know, our brain health to be the best that it possibly could be. So that way, all the rest of our body functions the way that um, is is in our best interest, right, is, is in our highest good. And so although, you know, that motivation is still the same, because I do want everyone to understand um, that these are all natural, these are all when we look at this through the lens of trauma, when we look at it through the lens of adverse experiences and through the lens of brain health, we actually understand that the behaviors that we may see as bad or maladaptive or whatever we want to call them are actually natural for the way that our brains function um, and, and the way that human beings actually survive. And so, you know, that motivation is still there of, of understanding that you're not alone, but it is, it's more expanded to help everyone as humans understand how our bodies work, how our brains work, um, why our behaviors may be the behaviors that they are. Um, and then what can we do to help? What can we do to heal not only ourselves, but how can we prevent them within our children, within our youth? And how can we best, you know, how can we be the best community member, family member, you know, um, co-worker, friend that we can possibly be? You mentioned trauma. When and why did you start to focus on the area of adverse childhood experiences? Again, some of that may have already been answered and some of what you've talked about with your why, but when did that become a, a focal point for you and what was the impetus for you starting to focus in that area? So I've actually always focused on the, um, on the area of adverse childhood experiences. I learned about the study um, quite early into my recovery, so probably about 14 years ago. Um, and when I learned about the study, it was an answers to so many questions of my own, um, why my own personal struggles in my own, my life, um, what kind of were some of the root causes behind it and learning more um, about how my body actually responded to the adverse childhood experiences that I had faced. Um, in my own life. And so I had used it as my own personal guiding principles in my healing and in my journey. But then also it under it was the underpinnings of all of the work that I had done. And when I started focusing and taking a more direct focus on trauma and bringing that into the community um, has really been within the last, um, I would say probably four or five years. Um, and then I had a great opportunity to do a project with the Adverse Childhood Experience, Arizona Adverse Childhood Experiences Consortium to bring trauma-informed substance use prevention training to community coalitions. And so the work just kind of went hand-in-hand uh, hand at that point. It was able to um, blend what I was doing in a, in a really great and powerful way, um, which has led me onto just even a further deeper dive journey into ACEs and trauma and, and the effects. Um, that it has on, on our population. 
In your answer to the when and why, you mentioned the study, and you mentioned discovering that about 14 years ago. When did ACEs become a focal point in the field of mental health, and what was the research that really kicked off that area of study? You mentioned the study, and I am familiar with that CDC, Kaiser Permanente. Can you explain a little bit about when that study occurred and and how it changed the landscape? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, that study was in the, uh, it's called the ACEs study, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And it was done in the late 90s. Uh, Dr. Folletti, um had a weight loss, weight loss clinic at the time. And he had noticed that a lot of his um, all-stars, so to say, who had lost a bunch of weight, uh, started gaining the weight back um, about six months later. And in follow-up interviews, um, he inadvertently came upon the fact that one of the clients had sexual abuse in her inner childhood history. And that made him think, hmm, I wonder about the rest of our clients. And when he went through and he did interviews with them, he realized that the majority of the women had sexual abuse in their childhood history. And it spurred him to think of, well, I wonder how does childhood adversity, you know, that's, that's really kind of strange. If it was one or two, it would be, you know, one thing, but having the majority of them and having them, you know, all have this manifest the same way as an adult, I wonder what that looks like. And so he partnered with the CDC um, and Kaiser Permanente, which is a private insurance company um, in California, and he partnered with them to do what they called the ACEs study. And the ACEs study was um, broke up in, it was 10 questions, and it was broke up into two, two categories of, um, of childhood adversity. Um, the one category being abuse and neglect, and the second category being household challenges. So what does that look like in their households? Did, did they live with someone who um, used drugs or alcohol? Did they have a member in the family in the household that had faced incarceration? Did they live someone live with someone who had mental illness? Um, did they witness a parent being um, treated violently and that was either physically or emotionally? Or did they face um, parental separation? And then in the abuse category, they looked at physical abuse, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, and then emotional or physical neglect. Um, they did this study. Uh, the demographics are really important to note because they did this study with um, primarily upper middle class, um, Caucasian, um, and the average age was about 57 years old, and they all were able to afford private health insurance. Um, and so what they did was they sent this, this quote study um, out to each one of them, and they just needed to answer yes or no to the 10 questions. Um, if they had answered yes, then it kind of constituted, for lack of a better language, a point. And so the highest ACE score you can have is 10. The lowest ACE score you can have is zero. And what they did then was they, um, they kind of, they looked at from, you know, these experiences, their ACE scores, and granted, all of these questions were experiences that happened in their lives before they turned the age of 18. Um, and so what did their ACE score, how did it correlate with their current adult health? And, and that's, that was the genesis, you know, of the, um, of the ACEs study and looking at how adverse childhood experiences really does impact um, adult health. You mentioned the later effect on adult health. The impact of ACEs on a child should be readily apparent because we're talking about abuse, neglect, household dysfunction. So, so the short-term concern is obvious. But another troubling aspect of ACEs is exactly what you mentioned a moment ago, the long-term impact on health and behavior, things that can manifest down the road. What are some of the long-term effects of ACEs? Well, unfortunately, I think it would probably be easier to say what are not some of the long-term effects true. Of, of ACEs, because the, the effects of um, adverse childhood experiences on a person's body um, really is, 
it hits every single organ um, and every single process that our body has. Um, when we understand the what toxic power body responds to toxic stress and to those adverse childhood experiences by, um, you know, kind of ramping our system up for fight or flight um, or kind of shutting it down for that freeze. Um, which are which are normal responses that our body takes. Um, and looking at all of the different systems that are involved, we can see that, um, you know, it affects every organ um, that we have in some way. And so it just depends on how that in- impacts the individual's body. But what we do see is we see increase um, in the risks, in the risks, in the risks of stroke, heart disease, um, chronic pain, autoimmune disorders, um, obviously mental and behavioral health when we're talking about substance use disorder, mental illness. Um, it really it really kind of affects every every facet of our being. And another one I'll emphasize that I, I recently saw a chart on showing the increase as the number of ACEs go up were suicide attempts and completions as well. And so you mentioned it, it, it affects the whole person entirely. One of the most interesting and, and concerning things for me when it comes to the impact of ACEs is epigenetics. For those who may not be familiar, what is epigenetics and how can ACEs impact gene expression? So epigenetics is it's an emerging area of, of research, but it shows how environmental influences can affect that expression of the gene, right? And I am not a brain scientist, um, and so therefore the things that I know are more on a layperson layperson term. It is definitely one of the most interesting um, subjects for me as well, Shane, um, is is how can that affect? Um, but when when we look at the what toxic stress does to our body, and we and understand the the normal processes that our body goes through. So, for example, when our body goes into that heightened fight or flight, when it is protecting us. Um, from those things that are outside of our control, our body will naturally release more cortisol. It'll naturally naturally release more of our stress hormones um, so that way our body can be in that readied state to right, to be able to escape or to be able to fight so we can escape. Um, <clears throat> and what happens when our, when our body is under stress for longer periods of time is it doesn't have that time to come back down and relax and to digest those stress hormones. It doesn't have time to come back into, you know, more of a regulated state where our heart isn't beating as fast, where our breaths, you know, are longer and deeper. Um, It it stays in that um, more activated state. And what happens then is because of that activated state, our genes start creating little markers to kind of remember um, where where we were, um, and and really, it's a it's a whole entire process of our body um, trying to keep us safe and trying to keep us out of the danger if it should happen again in our lives. And what they've shown is through that process, um, and it's typically through a methylation process. Um, if people want to look more up into it, is that um, these biomarkers um, will tell a gene whether to turn on or whether to turn off. Um, and though that gene expression can be passed from generation um, to generation um, through it, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and a lot of new information is coming out, you know, every single month, it, it seems like it because the study is so is so new. So when we talk about the long-term effects of ACEs, it's not just not not just long-term in the life of the person who went through the trauma. You mentioned future generations can be impacted by this. So that shows us how important it is to do something about this, to do what we can to prevent adverse childhood experiences and trauma, or if it's already occurred, to be able to provide the support and the care that that individual needs. The likelihood of dealing with those future behavioral health issues increases as someone's ACE score gets higher. However, ACEs do not guarantee that someone will encounter those challenges later. In fact, ACEs can be mitigated to a certain point 
by, which you mentioned earlier and I mentioned in your, in your introduction, trauma-informed care. We briefly touched on the topic of trauma-informed care on our last episode featuring Brandy Stuhan of Chrysalis, but I'd like to get into it a little bit more with you. What is trauma-informed care? How does it work? And why is it important when helping someone with ACEs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and and in, I think, you know, the, the primary component of trauma-informed care is understanding what trauma does to a person's body and what are the kind of natural responses that you're going to see out of that, right? So if you, you don't have that understanding, then it makes it more um, difficult to respond in a, quote, trauma-informed um trauma-informed way. Um, but what, what you were saying before about it being intergenerational, you know, if we think about um, family stories, and it, just think about it in the family story way, and, you know, something had happened in your family, and you've passed it along um, as that um, as every generation has come along, maybe it was a warning, maybe it was something bad that had happened, maybe it was something good that had happened, but we pass those stories along as as we go along, right, from generation to generation. And that also includes um, the way that we respond to the world and the way that we respond to people, the way that we respond to stress and situations situations like that. Um, being a being a mother myself of four biological children um, and a multitude of others that have been in my life, I have I have um, un, you know undoubtedly learned as every other parent has that they will do as I do and not as I say. Um, even Absolutely. Though we would like, even though we would like it to be the other way, and so my modeling of emotional regulation. Um, or emotional dysregulation actually has a greater impact on my children than me telling them to calm down or to take a breath. And, I, and that's how I look at trauma-informed care, right? So it's not what are you telling um, it, you know, your clients, it is how are you how are you yourself, right? Are you emotionally regulated? What are you modeling to them? When it is a stressful situation and they're escalated, um, their body is dysregulated, they may be activated. Are you also activated? Are you also going into dysregulation? Or are you able to model that regulation for them in order to have that kind of co-regulation where as you are regulated and you're modeling it, you're able to help their system um, regulate itself? Does that make sense? So not as much as, as, you know, what are you telling them to do or giving them a packet of things to do? Mm -hmm. or, this is your therapy, but really, how are you in that space with them? And are you looking at them through the lens of what is wrong with you? Or are you looking at them through the lens of what has happened to you? What has happened to you in your life that brought you to this point that the way that you are responding is, is appropriate for you right now? Does that make sense? Um, our, our bodies are set as humans um, to survive at all costs. That's our goal as a human, right? That's what our body does. And, and so it will come up with processes that we believe keeps it safe. And so, but unfortunately, in, you know, the way that our society works is sometimes is those processes tend to be labeled as bad. Um, they tend to be labeled as undesirable. Um, we don't, you know, we don't want you to throw tantrums here in the middle of a grocery store, even though that what that tantrum is signaling to you right then is that that child's body is dysregulated and whatever is happening is more than their body can take and their brain can cope with at that moment. And so when we look at clients and we can see this behavior doesn't match what's going on right now. For their body, they feel that it does. So that means that their body is activated because they feel that they are in threat of something. And so trauma-informed care is, is understanding that and then understanding that the best thing that we can do is um, model appropriate coping mechanisms 
um, and emotional regulation so that way we can help them regulate their own system so that way we can have that deeper conversation that is, you know, therapists and clinicians and heck parents, right, would like to have with, um, with them. So that way they, you know, their thinking brain is online and they're not just kind of acting from that, that survival piece. What are you modeling? How are you holding yourself and conducting yourself in that space that you're in with that individual? I love the reframing of what's wrong with you to what happened to you. When we work with middle school and high school students who are using substances, more often than not, when you take time to hear the story or you take time to find out the details, there is a very good reason behind it. They are attempting to cope with something that they don't know how to cope with. By the way, backing up a little bit to something that you said, I can verify as a parent myself, the phrase calm down does not help a child to calm down. If anything, it, it, it may accelerate the situation. So you're absolutely correct on that. So you, you gave us a really good explanation of what trauma-informed care is and, and why it's important. What can happen if someone, even a well-intentioned person, is attempting to help an individual with a high ACE score, a number of ACEs, and the helper fails to implement trauma-informed care? What can occur? Well, I mean, we're all, we're all human, and so therefore we are all going to fail to implement trauma-informed care at some point um, because we all still have our, our human responses, right? But so there is, there is no shame in, in, that, in, in, in that piece of it. Um, it just makes it harder because what happens when a body is dysregulated, when a body is um, responding in that survival mode, what happens is our thinking brain goes off our offline. So our cognitive brain, the one that does that logical, rational thinking, that that is not needed in that moment in space. Um, think about things like um, you know playing playing a soccer game, and you're in the you know you're in the middle of you're in the middle of the game. You know, do you want your players being on the field thinking, hmm? I wonder if I did really well on that test today or if my friend still likes me. You know, we don't we don't want them thinking of things like that. We want them doing, right? And and having those automatic responses so that way they're they're playing that game and and they don't have to think. Um when we're dysregulated, that's the space that we're in, right? We're we're kind of in that survival back back brain based thinking. Um and so therefore when we meet somebody who um, is also coming from that space, is also coming from that space, um, nothing really gets solved in that space, right? Because we don't have that cognitive, cognitive online um, thinking about it. And so it's not that it's not necessarily that something like catastrophically bad is going to happen. But it there, that also means that there's not going to be anything that's really good that's going to be happening either. Because learning is not happening on either side. Um, the ability to be able to take a look at ourselves and, um, and where we are or where we're supposed to be going, you know, in the next few steps, we're not able to look at that because we're too busy worrying and focusing on how do I survive this moment right here. And I think that's the importance of trauma-informed care is understanding if, if you want to be inf effective, um, you need to understand how important it is for you to remain as regulated as possible. And when you have human moments, like we all do, um, to recognize that and, um, and to have that conversation, you know, that, that, hey, you know, I just reacted in a way that, um, you know, maybe it might not have been the best for this. And I'm sorry if it upset or if it hurt you. Um, you know, we're all human and we, we react in ways a lot of times that we don't um, necessarily mean to, but our body thinks that that is the best case scenario for that situation. Does that make sense? And so then how can we, um, how can we move forward in a more, more regulated space? 
in addition to providing trauma-informed care after the fact, what can we do in advance to address ACEs? Can they be prevented? And if so, how? What do we need to do collectively or societally to prevent them or reduce their frequency? Yes, 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 and yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, and yes. Um, You know, adverse childhood experiences cannot can be prevented and and the thing is is even once we've experienced them there is always hope and there is always healing um i refuse to ever believe that um <clears throat> that someone is a lost cause and that healing cannot happen it may not happen in the way that we have set up currently um but that just means that we haven't found the right pathway for them yet. Um, I think when it, when it comes to so many different questions in there, Shane, um, I'll a lot of questions, take them one at a time. Um, when we talk about prevention, um, when it, when it comes to children in, um, some of the more recent studies that are coming out are that positive child, positive childhood experiences, played just as big, if not a bigger effect in children's lives than adverse childhood experiences do. That's huge. Like understanding that having those positive childhood experiences to maybe offset or mitigate any adverse experiences that child may have faced is is really important, especially as parents and family members um, and and for loved ones is understanding that having a safe, caring, supportive adult um, in their lives can mitigate a lot of um, a lot of the damage that adverse childhood experiences can do. But it's also understanding what does that safe, supportive adult mean? And um, and that is someone that the child or other adult feels safe um, not judged, um, where they have an open space to be able to express their feelings, um, um, in a safety, in a, in a place of safety that, um, that there's no ridiculing, there's no judgment, there's no shame in their feelings. Um, and, and that's the hard part. Um, because, you know, when, when we look at, the ACEs study itself, the majority of our population, 67% of them actually as adults, have had at least one adverse childhood experience in their life. And as we know, as adults ourselves, as we know, um, adverse experiences continue to happen (laughs) through adulthood. It's not like we turn 18 and all of a sudden everything is, is roses and things don't affect us anymore. Um, and, and I always say that adults are really just children who've turned 18. Um, we just have more responsibilities for us, but if we haven't had mitigation, if we haven't had, um, an interruption, um, in that or treatment for the trauma that we had faced as children, we're going to continue repeating them. Um, and so that kind of first piece of prevention is, um, is having those healthy, stable adults. Um, being able to connect with children, connect with youth to help that kind of mitigation. As an adult, if you, you know, if you have experienced, um, you know, ACEs as, as I have, my, my, my ACE score is a six, um, that you are able to take a look at your behaviors or take a look at the way that you look at the world um, and, and really come up with a plan to kind of work on healing um, from the effects of, of adverse childhood experiences and trauma um, adversity in general, so that you can um, then be the best role model um, for health and hope and healing that, um, that you can be. Being the one to break that cycle. And, and I've, I, I've met so many people since being in this field who have done exactly that. I'm glad you mentioned the protective factor of positive childhood experiences because you know we spend a lot of time focusing so much on risk factors that it's important to understand the protective factors that can mitigate that risk. And you mentioned one that I mentioned so many times on this show because it's so important 
It's the presence of that safe, supportive, caring adult. And it doesn't have to be a parent. It doesn't even have to be a grandparent or an educator. I've told the story on the show several times of a security guard at a school that stopped a young man from attempting to end his own life. And he said, she's the one that made the difference in my life. I like to remind the listeners of when this year, we all have the power to be that adult, to be that difference maker. And you may think to yourself, well, I don't necessarily know what to do in that situation. Sometimes that person that's coming to you isn't looking for you to solve everything or expecting you to. But as Angie mentioned, holding that space with no judgment or no shame, that in and of itself to let that person feel like they're being heard, they're being listened to, and they're being understood, that right there can be an absolute game changer in and of itself. So do you notice any kind of misunderstanding by the general public when it comes to trauma? I feel like we're starting to collectively get brought up to speed more on this, but are there myths that need to be cleared up or, or maybe a message that we need to do a better job getting out there? You know, um, another big question. That is I a big question. question. <laughs> I know. I love your question. Um, it's, it's great, though. Um, because, you know, I think, you know, we are talking about trauma and we're talking about trauma informed care more now. Um, and, and while that is really great on one hand, um, another, it's also become kind of a buzzword, right? For things. And, and sometimes things get lost in the translation. We definitely are a society of pull them up by your bootstraps. Um, kind of thing. And I have faced this. And so you can too. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And that, cre that creates, um, that creates a lot of shame in itself. Um, when we are perpetuating that message um, over and over. Um, I think that when we, when we talk about trauma, we've also not talked about the resilience piece to it either. We talk about all of the negative effects that adverse childhood experiences um, can have on a person. Um, we don't talk as much about that safe, supportive, caring adult or how to be that safe, supportive, caring adult um, or what hope and resilience looks like um, and how there, yeah, there are people who have experienced really, really um, tough things in their childhood and they they come out and they do amazing and wonderful things. That doesn't mean that the road to get there wasn't very hard, right? And that it doesn't mean that they didn't have help and they didn't have support along the way. I mean, I think in our society right now, we have a um, we have a really bad habit of showing like kind of like the before and after pictures in the weight weight loss journeys, right? Yep, where. It's like, okay, but did you see the year and a half of, oh, I don't know, like tears every other day and of hard work in the gym and, you know, watching what you've eat and, and all of those other things that went along in order to have those before and after pictures. Um, and, and that whole kind of pulling them up by the bootstraps mentality, I did it so you can do it too, is, is really shame-based. Um, and is actually a negative, it actually is, um, is working counter to what we would like to see happen, right? Having that other space, though, that you had kind of had just mentioned also is that holding that space is understanding that every person is different. What we have gone through, how we experienced it within our own bodies, how our bodies responded to it what our coping mechanisms were, natural skills were that we had, you know, growing up, that everyone's is completely and totally different. Mm -hmm. And that kind of holding that space for someone, showing them, you know, um, resilience through crying, <laughs> through, you know, being empathetic to somebody else that, that is experiencing something that maybe you haven't experienced, but understand that no matter what, that they find it hard, um, whether you found it easy or not, they find it hard. And that's kind of important. Like those are the things that I think kind of get lost in this whole, um, this whole entire discussion. 
um, around around that, and then how um, how resilience is actually built through doing really hard things too. Um, and I don't think that we talk about that um, as much. I know I know that you know you understand this because um, I followed you for as many years. Um, but understanding that the only way to success is through failure, that the only way that we build self-esteem, that we build resilience, resiliency is to have some of these failures, right? Um, otherwise, what would you be resilient from if everything was always going peachy yep. in your life? You wouldn't need it. I mean, so understanding that these pieces actually play an important part, the way that we frame them, the way that we respond to them, the way that we address them, not as a poor, pitiful, you know, there's, you know, oh, you know, what are we going to do kind of thing, but as in a, how can I best support you through this? You know, know that we are here for you um, and that, yeah, even though that person looks like they have it all together or they have made it through really hard things, we, we never saw what that looked like in order to get there. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I love the question of how can I best support you through this? A lot of times people go into fixing mode and they're trying to foist these solutions onto this person. And again, it's really well-intentioned. As you said before, we're human. It's, it's natural to want to fix this situation if somebody's going through pain or difficulty, but asking them the question, how can I best support you? Giving them that control back, giving them that choice back in a life that may feel very out of control, a life that feels like it's devoid of choices. So I love asking questions like that with, with people, and, and that makes perfect sense. You mentioned resilience. That needs to be its own episode, and that's something that we absolutely have to get on the, on the calendar in the near future. If someone listening to this is interested in learning more about adverse childhood experiences and or trauma-informed care, are there particular resources you'd recommend? I already have some in mind that we're going to link in the show notes, but is there anything in particular that you know you would suggest for someone that's wanting to take a bit of a deeper dive into this topic? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, besides the Adverse Childhood Experiences Consortium in Arizona, the azaces.org, they have great Arizona-specific information on ACEs. We have the cost of um, ACEs in, in Arizona, and they have re really great publications that you can download. They also have online learning modules, so they have an intro to ACEs. They also have a link between um, ACEs, Childhood Trauma, and Substance Use Disorder, um, which is a great online module to really kind of understand those biological processes um, that are working within a system. Um, another great website, um, and this is for all things ACEs, is, is they just rebranded last week, and it's PacesConnection.org. And so it's P-A-C-E-S connection.org. And they used to be acesconnection.org and they were all saying adverse childhood experiences. When the study around positive childhood experiences came out a couple years ago, they really started um, looking at, at how, you know, we really need to be having this conversation of both of them together. Um, and so they just changed their name last week to the po positive and Adverse Childhood Experiences Connection. And that website has more information than you could possibly ever go through. Um, but it's broken down into lots of different categories, parenting, teachers, um, behavioral health providers, uh, faith leaders, like, um, you know, individual experiences and how that looks. Um, and how does this affect what does cultural competency look like? What, how does, what is historical and generational trauma? Um, you know, what are all of those pieces? What are the new ACEs information that is coming out? And since the original study in the 90s, there have been a lot, a lot more studies that have gone on and have looked at expanding the adverse childhood experiences that we look at. Because as we know, um, you know, trauma doesn't happen in just those 10 categories that they, that they mentioned, right? They didn't look at things like poverty. They didn't look at community violence. They didn't look at um, racism. They didn't look at, um, you know, um, access 
to, you know, water. Um, they didn't look at climate. They didn't look at, you know, things like how did the, how does the COVID um, pandemic affect our children, affect our bodies, affect our stress levels. We know as adults how stressful it can be. And, and if you've, you know, watched anything coming out on that, um, the level of stress that the parents and caregivers are feeling, how that's translated into children. And so that website really kind of looks at all of those pieces, right? Like what are the, um, what is going on right now? What are the most current studies? So that's a great um, great website to do. Aces Too High um, is another really good, um, really good site. You can do the Aces test on there. Um, my caveat for if you know if you're listening to this, it's the first time you've heard of adverse childhood experiences. You're like, oh, I want to go see what my Aces score is. And my caveat for that is, please look at it as information. Um, it's kind of like going to the doctor and recognizing that in your family history, you have um, a history of diabetes. That doesn't mean that you're going to develop diabetes yourself, right? That means that that is information for you to maybe take, um, you know, a, a more conscientious look at your blood sugar numbers or maybe get tested for it um, when you're at the doctor. Maybe you watch, you know, what you're consuming and, and you watch those physical health symptoms. That's what taking the ACEs score is like. It is just information that says, huh, I have, you know, this for an ACE score and this could be um, driving, you know, A, B, C, and D. Um, and so it really kind of take um, take a look at that, not thinking that it is a um, that it is a diagnosis in any way, shape, or form. That um, it is you know a sentence to having ill health for the rest of your life. Because um, what we have learned and what we have seen through the studies is that we can mitigate the factors even as adults, um, and and so it's really important to, to look through it at that lens. And then the last one, um, I mean, there's many more, but the other really good one that has great like videos and other things so that we can see what the effects of ACEs are on bodies is um, the Center on, De on the Developing Child through Harvard. And they have some really great resources on their, on their website. So once again, those resources were azaces.org. AcesConnection.org, Aces Too High, and Center on the Developing Child, correct? Yes. And we will make sure that down in the show notes, what I'll do is I will include the links. We'll make them hypertext so you can click on them and get to them easily. One more thing before we finish. Uh, I mentioned Arizona Recovers in your introduction. What's the best way for people to find more information about Arizona Recovers? Is there a website address, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Arizona Recovers is ArizonaRecovers.org. We make it really difficult. <laughs> ArizonaRecovers.org will also... ArizonaRecovers.org. All right, we'll have that down in the show notes as well. Angie, is there anything you'd like to add or anything that I may have overlooked? I don't think that there's anything that you've overlooked. I do, um, you know, when talking about adverse childhood experiences, it can sometimes be a downer. And if you are a parent listening to this and, um, and your child has experienced adverse childhood experiences because of things that you may have done right in your lifetime as an adult, I want you to know that there's no shame around any of that stuff. We all do the best we can with the knowledge that we have at the time. End of story, period. We don't set out to harm anyone. Um, know that even if your children um, have experienced adverse childhood experiences, that it is never it is never too late. I didn't get into recovery until my oldest three were six, five, and two. Um, and we were able to, um, we were able to kind of break that cycle and, um, change some of the ways that they have, um, dealt and coped with life and the life skills and coping skills that they have, have learned over the years. 
Um, some of their journeys are a little bit longer than others, um, just as your journey may have been a little bit longer than others and mine has as well. Um, there is always hope for healing and um, finding the right support. Um, even if it's just one person, is we can't downplay the effects of that. Um, and if you, as you know, if anyone ever needs anything, my contact information is on the site and feel free to, um, feel free to reach out to, uh, for a non-judgmental year on that. Perfect. Couldn't have put it any better than that. Angie, thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Thank you for joining us on Win this year. Thank you, Shane, for having us. As always on Win This Year, we'd like to give you some resources in case you are facing a mental or behavioral health challenge or you're helping someone who is. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK, T-A-L-K. The crisis text line can be reached by texting the word LISTEN to 741741. Community information and referral services are available by dialing 211 or visiting 211.org. And the Not My Kid text line can be reached by texting the word QUESTION to area code 602-580-0665. Once again, text the word QUESTION to area code 602-580-0665. Thanks once again to our guest, Angie Burleson. If you've enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Win This Year, please be sure to subscribe, share, and spread the word. Win This Year can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and nearly every other mainstream podcast outlet. If you have questions or concerns, would like to suggest a guest or a topic for a future episode, email us at winthisyear at notmykid.org. As always, all links mentioned in this episode will be in the show notes along with all the links for Not My Kids social media. I'm Shane Watson, Public Information Officer and Prevention Specialist for Not My Kid. Thank you again for listening to Win This Year. <laughs>